1 Samuel 18, verse 1, this is what it said. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them. For Jonathan loved David. These two young men met one another. And there was an immediate bond between the two. There's no real explanation. There's no real clarity as to what happened or why it took place in this way. But as we read through the story of David and we find his interaction with Jonathan, we find that they were instant friends. Also, as we read through the scriptures, we find out that their friendship was rather unique. We don't see all the details of that as we read this story. But as we read it, their their connection with one another, it seems unique. It seems special. And one of the ways in which we know so is, is not just by what's here, but it's by what we don't find anywhere else. Which is that nowhere else in the Hebrew Scriptures, nowhere else in our Old Testament, is there an example shown to us of two men who are friends like this. It is only here that we watch this take place. And there's something beautiful about the way that these two cared for one another. And yet, before we get too excited about it, their friendship makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. There is no way that these two were supposed to be friends. If you know anything about David's story, you know these two young men should have never been friends with one another. They were destined to be bitter enemies. They were at war for the exact same prize. Whether they knew it or not, these guys weren't supposed to be friends. They were supposed to hate one another. Jonathan, his father's name was Saul. You remember him as we've talked over the last couple weeks. But Saul was the first human king of the Israelite people. The Israelites begged God that God would give them a king so that they could look like all of the other people's. God and Samuel fought back with them. No, you don't want a king. You have a king. God's your king. And they said, no, we want a king like everybody else has a king. So God gave them Saul. God chose Saul to be the first human king of the Israelites. Samuel anointed him once God had chosen him. And he went on to rule the people. And in other kingdoms, the ones that the Israelites had asked to be like, it was understood that the way that power on the throne worked is that it was passed from father, who was the king, to oldest son, who was the prince. And that would happen for generations. They would continue to pass it down the family line unless a whole other stream of things happened like coups and overthrows and stuff like that. Um, but basically, this is kind of the general expectation of what's going to take place and what's going to happen in a kingdom. So Jonathan was the heir to his father's throne. He was the expected future king. He was the rightful heir. It was known that he would be next. He was to be the next leader of God's people. However, God had different plans. Over the last few weeks, as we've talked primarily about David, we've hinted at some of Saul's story and talked about the reality that that Saul became more and more disobedient to God the longer he was in power. 
continually he turned away from God. And eventually that turn from God was so severe, it was so unrelenting, it was so refusing to find any version of repentance or any version of turning back to God that God left Saul. And he took with him the blessing of what it meant for Saul to be king. And if you remember, as we looked at a few weeks ago, God chose a new king. God chose a new heir to the throne. The first time David appears anywhere in the scriptures is when Samuel was sent on a journey by God to go out and find the next king. To find the next person who would be appointed to the throne. We've talked about the difficulties in that. You don't go find a new king while there's already a king on the throne. There's all kinds of issues that come up with that. It's treason. It results in death for everyone involved. It's a bad idea. But that's exactly what God had called Samuel to do. And when he did so, he gave him instructions. Go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was this poor city, a a small town, mainly poverty stricken. It wasn't thought well of. It wasn't a place that good things came from. It wasn't a place of any respect whatsoever, but that's where God had sent Samuel. And he said, go to Bethlehem. And when you get there, find one of Jesse's sons and appoint the son king. Well, David was that son. And yet, interestingly, again, we've talked about the son. He was the youngest of the sons. He was the least respected of the sons. In fact, he was so so unimportant to his family that the invitation had gone out from Samuel for Jesse to come with his sons to the sacrifice. So Jesse came and he brought his sons and no one even thought about inviting David to come with them. No one even considered the possibility of bringing David to the sacrifice with him. Jesse brought all of his other sons. He left David out in the field with the sheep. Later they found David, and when they did, they brought him in the room, and God told Samuel, this is the one who will be king. So Samuel anointed David as the next king right there in front of his father and in front of his brothers and in front of the other elders and those from Bethlehem who had been called to be a part of that. Now, again, you get all of that piece of the story. There's a whole lot more details that you could get. But ultimately, it comes to this point. David and Jonathan cannot be friends. There was a battle for the throne at hand. They were going to have to go to war to decide who would be the next king. And instead... They became best friends. Instead, there was this unbreakable bond that existed between the two of them. There was this unbreakable connection that came into play, and they became deeply committed to one another. Now, around the same time in the story, Saul grows more and more suspicious of David, more and more suspicious of the fame that David's getting, more and more suspicious of how much everybody loves David more than they love Saul, and Saul decided that he and David were now bitter enemies. Saul was deeply committed to making sure that he protected his family's claim to power. David, at this point, deeply committed to following God's call for his life. And Jonathan, for some reason, 
deeply committed to his friend, David. There's this subtle and yet powerful symbol that takes place in the very beginning of their story, right as they meet one another. And we're, we're told in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 18, Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. And Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. This, this robe that Jonathan wore, the robe that he had on, it was a symbol of his future. It was a symbol of what belonged to him, what had been given to him, what was being bestowed upon him from his father. And as he took off this robe, as he removed his robe and he handed it to David, he was in effect transferring his own status as heir apparent from himself to David. He was giving away his throne. He was choosing his friend over his own rights. He was choosing David over the throne. He was choosing love over power. It's it's possible, and there are those that, that argue. I'm not sure they're wrong. That perhaps Jonathan was actually a better friend to David than David actually was to Jonathan. That maybe Jonathan is the example that we should look at for friendship. But ultimately, something that we see take place is this reality that the two of them were connected. And I think it's important for us to remember that the most important aspect of what we've found in this understanding of what it means to be a man after God's own heart, which is what David was called, what it means for us to be a people after God's own heart, is less about what we are doing and more about what God is doing. God knew David needed a friend in this journey. God knew that David's life wasn't going to be easy as he continued to journey towards faithfulness to God. As he continued to pursue this road that God had called him on, this journey towards the throne, there would be lots of difficulties that took place. We read the bookends to... to 1 Samuel chapters 18 through 20, these three chapters. And in just these three chapters, in just this little bit of David's story, we find that Saul tried to kill David repeatedly. And if he wasn't trying to kill him himself, he was trying to get him killed or send others to kill him. Saul was trying to do everything that he could to dispose of David. David's life was not going to be an easy one. His faithfulness, his continued pursuit and journey towards the throne that God had called him to would not be easy. The days ahead would be difficult. And David needed a friend who would stay deeply committed to him through thick and thin if there was any way that he was going to survive what God had called him to. So as we read the story of these two, we watch as Jonathan literally puts his life on the line for David over and over again. We watch as he stands against his father, choosing the side of his friend rather than his father in order to defend his friend and his vow that he has made to him. We watch as he becomes a spy against his father, scouting out whether or not Saul is actually angry enough to kill David. If that's his goal, if that's what he's pursuing. And when he finds out that that's true, he passes the message to David so that David can escape without being killed by the king. 
Jonathan took on this posture of protecting, of working towards, of saving his friend over and over and over again. And I believe that this is the kind of people God is calling us to be as the church. That in order for us to come to this place, in order for us to understand what it means to be a people after God's own heart, in order for us to understand what it means to live faithfully, that part of what we have to do is submit to the reality that we cannot make this journey of faith alone. In fact, nowhere in the scriptures do we find the understanding or the teaching or the the explanation that faith is a solitary journey. Nowhere. In the Old Testament, it was always about the people of God. And although heroes rose up, they rose up to lead forward the people of God. As we get to the New Testament, we find the servicing of Jesus. But in the wake of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, he leaves behind the church. He leaves behind the body. Again, there are heroes that lead the church forward. But they are always committed to leading the people of God forward, the body of Christ forward, the church forward. The gathering of the people of God is always the intention of God. God is committed to gathering together his people. So you and I should not. In fact, we cannot take this journey of faith alone. We're called to journey in faith with the bride of Christ, with the body of Christ, with the church. And whether that's Valley or that's some other church that God has called us to be in, we are called to be deeply committed to a local body, to walk together with the body of faith, to join together as the body of Christ Following after our Savior. So for a minute, let's talk about being honest about this expectation. If I were to ask you what, what word comes to mind, what thing, what, what, how do you describe this idea of what it means to be the church? I'm not going to ask you to do that publicly um, because you might not say what I want you to say. So I think that some of you might talk about how beautiful it is. About how powerful it is to be the body of Christ together, to, to walk in, in, in this journey together. But I suspect that if some of you are willing to be really, really honest, you might also talk about how hard it is. You see, being the church can be really, really wonderful. And I know that lots of you have stories. I've heard some of them. Some I haven't, but I've heard some of these stories about the ways in which the church has been powerful for you, the ways in which the church has come alongside you in some of your most difficult days or on days of some of your greatest celebrations, and you have known that you could rely on the church. The church was who stood with you. They stood with you and gave you the strength to walk through perhaps the most difficult loss that you've ever experienced in your entire life. But the church was that place for you. Some of you have stories about how the church came alongside you as you moved to a new place. They were your community. They were your friends. They were where you found people to connect with. 
Some of you have stories about how the churches who stood beside you as you pursued this significant dream that you weren't sure was possible. You weren't sure if you could get there, but the church stood with you. The church walked beside you. Some of you have stories about how the church came alongside you as you welcomed a new family member into your family. As they they showed love to you and they showered that upon you. And you have story after story after story. There are all these great stories of what it means to be the church. And the truth is the church at its best is a beautiful picture of what it means to be the kingdom on earth as as it is in heaven. We were supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer today. It's my intention that we start doing that at the end of the family prayer. Jerry even had it ready, but I forgot until just a moment ago. We'll get there because I want us to, to practice that together. But what it says in there is that we pray that the kingdom of God would be a reality on earth as it is in heaven. And at its best, the church is to be a model of that, a picture of that, an image of what it looks like. And somehow, at exactly the same time, being the church is really, really hard. It's hard to be connected with this group of people, isn't it? If you and I got to pick our church kind of the way we pick a kickball team when we're children, I think there's a really good chance we wouldn't pick all the people that are in this room right now. (laughs) Some of you are laughing. What did somebody say back there? I heard somebody talking. Uh, that's, that's right. You pick a, you pick teams, they get laid out. That's how we pick kickball teams. And my guess is if you got to pick first, you wouldn't pick all these people. You'd be the person on the other side. It's like, oh man, I got stuck with them because sometimes that's the way we feel about what it means to be gathered together. Let's just be honest. Some of you are weird. Some of you are not very friendly. Some of you are unbelievably needy. Now, not me, of course. I'm not that way. It's only you that are a part of that. You were thinking the same thing, weren't you? You had the same thought go through your mind because when we talk about this, I'm never the problem. You are. And when you think about this, you're never the problem. They are. It's always somebody else who is the problem in here. It's always somebody else who we wouldn't pick to be on our team for a multitude of reasons. None of you have to shake your heads yes. I already know what is in your mind. This is one of those rare times I can read what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking as you're thinking, yep. I said that just today as we were coming. Oh no, we're going to have to see so and so. And yet the call of the church, part of what it means for you and I to be a people after God's own heart is that we are growing in these commands that Jesus gave us, the commands that we read in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And this, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's together at the, as the church that we get our first attempt at this calling. Our first attempt at what it means to love our neighbor. It's here that we get practice at this work of what it means to love people who are hard. To love people who are different. To love people who are strange. To love people who we're not sure we would choose to be in community with if we got to pick everyone. And yet, we learn what it means to love each other to walk together with the hopes that once we practice here, we can turn from outside of here and do the same with the world beyond us.
It's here, it's together that we get the chance to, to grow in what it means to love difficult people. Because at the very least, we believe that these people who are gathered together love Jesus too. So at the very least, we know we have that in common. And that if we can rest in just that, that we can figure out how to love all the other oddities about these people that we are surrounded by. That's why the church at its best is an incredibly diverse people. The church at its best is made up of a people who look different, who talk different, who think different. The church at its best is made up of a group of people who are different races and different cultures and different ethnicities that come from different economic classes and have different ranges of education that even have different theological persuasions. And so on and so forth. We could continue that list. But the church at its best when we're diverse gives us the opportunity to come together as a people who can say, at least I know we all love Jesus or are trying to do so. And therefore, we can figure out how to love one another. Because the reality is the more different than we are, the more diverse that we are as a body, as the church, as the people of Christ, the easier it becomes for us to learn what it means to love people who are different from us. Who don't love Jesus To learn what it means to love people who are different from us Who are out in the world, who think different, who speak different Who have different political persuasions Who have different thoughts on what it means to to, to be moral and to live ethics Who have a complete different world view And yet because we've learned to love really hard people here We can learn what it means to love really hard people outside of here And this is the call of what it means for us to be the church. And yet it's interesting to me, and I don't know how to break down all the dynamics or all the reality of this. But if your situation is similar to mine, then perhaps you would confess that sometimes it's actually easier to love people outside the church than it is to love hard people inside the church. Again, I don't exactly know why that's the case. But for some reason, it seems easier for us. Maybe it's about our expectations and what we expect of people who we know aren't connected to the church. But somehow, for some of us, it often becomes easier to love them. And yet, I think that we are supposed to commit ourselves to the practice of loving these. Even these who are hard. Even these who are difficult. Even those these who look different from us. Can you imagine how different life would be for us? If we could figure out what it means to follow after the example that David and Jonathan model for us in their unexpected and difficult friendship. What if each of us was more committed to one another than we are ourselves? What if each of us were more willing to sacrifice our own wants, our own desires for power or authority or preference for the sake of others? What if each of us were willing to protect the other, even if it costs us, even if it costs us in substantial ways? Can you imagine how differently we function as a church? If we were committed to the other person's well-being, to the other person's future, to the other person's calling, to the other person's heart, to the other person's faithfulness, to the other person's giftedness, even more than we were committed to our own 
Even more than we were concerned about who I am or what I'm supposed to do or the ways in which I'm gifted or I'm supposed to lead here or I'm more important or I'm more special. If we were more committed to the others who are sitting around us today than we were to ourselves, can you imagine how different life would look for us as the church? What if we were more like Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3, when it says, Because he loved him, speaking of David, as he loved himself. What if when we parted? What if when we, we left ways? What if when we, we went our separate directions, whether it was for the day or whether it was sending away a family like we're in the process of doing with the high bargains? What if in the process of that we responded much like David and Jonathan did at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20? Both of them were in tears as they embraced each other and said goodbye, especially David. At last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we have sworn loyal to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. What would it look like if we as a church lived life this way? If we as a church lived friendship this way? If we as a church were this deeply committed to one another? And if we could figure out how to live this way, what would it say to the rest of the world? In what powerful ways would it change our evangelism? Would it change our talk about the church and our talk about Jesus? If we looked at other people and said, God is love. What if they could actually see it lived out in our relationships with one another? What if when we said it, there was evidence behind it simply in the way that in which you and I behaved with each other? Can you imagine the ways that we would change our influence on society? If people recognized that here among the church, here among these people, it doesn't matter how different you are or how difficult you are or how damaged you are here, you will be loved. I don't care what news station you prefer or not. None of them have this kind of image of the church. Because this is not the image we have portrayed. In our schools... In our workplaces, in our comings and goings in social life, in our interactions with each other, in our interactions with strangers, in our interactions with neighbors. And we can be as hard on the press as we want to. Some of you are already doing it. I'm well aware. I read your Facebook pages. It's not their fault that we as the church have not shown them a people who deeply love others, even if they don't look like us.
It's not their fault. We did this. So they may give us a hard time, but I, for one, say we deserve it. What would it look like if you and I followed after the model of David and Jonathan? You see, David, in this pursuit of becoming the man that God had already chosen him to be. We talked about that translation issue in 1 Samuel chapter 13, where both are appropriate. But it could be read as the man that God had chosen. It could also be read as the man after God's own heart. As we looked at this reality of this this man that God had already chosen for David to be, we find that David learned what it meant to care for another person. He learned what it meant to be bonded to a friendship. That never should have happened. He learned what it meant to care for the person who should have been his most significant enemy. And and instead, they sacrificed their own lives for each other. They gave to one another over and over and over again. We see this reappear later. We see this commitment reappear in David's life later. But that's several sermons down the road. And I don't want to give that story away because it's a really good one. Church, friends, valley. Can we become this kind of people? Is it possible that you and I could become a people who learn to love this boldly? Can we become the kind of people who learn to friend this powerfully? First, among ourselves. And then among the rest of the world. Because I think this is part of what it means for us to be a people. After God's own heart. Will you pray with me? Jesus, Jesus, it is actually hard to speak to you after sharing these words. Because I have failed over and over and over again at loving well. Jesus, it's hard to pray on our behalf when I know that I fail every single day. At loving people. Not even loving hard people, but loving people who I like. So Jesus, as we come and as we pray, as we gather together as the body of Christ and we think about what it means to be loved and therefore to love God, I ask that you would make us the people who love others deeply. God, because I know I'm incapable of getting there myself, would you make of me and of us a people who love out of an overflow of the love that we have been given by you and by your Holy Spirit? 
Would you teach us to love each other well? Would you teach us to forgive each other well? Would you teach us to have conversations with one another well? God, would you give us courage? Would you give us faithfulness to sacrifice our own desires for the sake of others? God, could it be true that we as Valley, that we as a church are the kind of people who it is said that our relationships look different because we love the other as we love ourselves? God, change our hearts. Change the way we love. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.